You know, you know, oh, by the way, before we get started here tonight, let's, we're all Americans, and we should celebrate the American holidays as they come up. And tonight, I got this little note in the mail, it's about last Wednesday, and it said that we are celebrating, as of midnight tonight, another American week. You know, like Eat Donuts Week, like Tell a Dirty Story Week. Uh, all those little weeks that go on, and most of us don't pay any attention to it, and it's too bad because they're great weeks. Do you know what it is in just, let's see, it'll be at midnight, it's 10.30 now. It will be American Old Car Week. How many of you celebrate that every time you get in and sit down in the front seat? <laughs> you know, seriously, it's going to be America Old Car Week. What a nutty week to celebrate, you know? And I, I read that, and I says, by George, American Old Car Week. It says, let's honor the antique cars among us. And I thought to myself, yeah, you know, that's not a bad idea. And this afternoon, I spent the afternoon in New Hope, Pennsylvania, which, as you know, is as she-she as America gets. Oh, yeah, there's more whooping and hollering in the bushes around New Hope. <laughs> On the weekend, you know, it's a great... Incidentally, did you hear that great quote? Once in a while, the policemen are capable of unconscious poetry. Did you hear about the big raid out of, Cher out of Fire Island? They raided Cherry Grove. And, and there was a big raid on the boardwalk, and his cop said, they asked him about it, and he says, well, he says, they was all leaping like gazelles through the bushes. <laughs> I thought to myself, oh, Allen Ginsberg couldn't say it better, you know? <laughs> and I like the idea of them going through the bushes. <laughs> That's America in the summertime, you know? So, so I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm listening to this, this whole thing, you know, about America Old Car Week, and I'm up around New Hope, and they've got thousands of, of old cars up there. It's a big old car show. And I'm standing in the middle of the ring, see? I want to describe this little scene. I see this car come around, and somebody has restored it. It's like a beautiful image. It's a Model A. This is a Ford, see? And I'm watching it. And it comes putting around. It goes... And it's standing. You know how they wiggle? And I'm looking at it, see? And you know, I'll swear to God, that Ford looked at me with a snotty leer. Yeah, it's going, it's going like this. And I said, you know, I'm on the microphone. I say, this car was awarded second prize in its class. And it paused for a second. And there was a kind of an obscene blast out of the exhaust pipe. And away it went. I looked at that car, see. It was a Model A four-door. Beautifully restored. And then I thought of the time. I, re I couldn't help but remember it the time when one of those cars was responsible for a fantastic moment in my life. How many, no seriously, how many of you have had incidents in cars? <laughs> <laughs> they always have these drawing room comedies, you know, they, have, they ought to have the backseat of the Pontiac comedy. You know? No, seriously, I think cars have been responsible for a fantastic thing. Oh, by the way, speaking of great moments, I don't think this has been properly celebrated. Did all of you read about what happened a couple of days ago 
when the birth rate of New York City shot up. Did you read that? And you know, they've been talking about it. Well, the night that that happened, you know, I'm serious. The night I was on the air all night, you know, when we had the big blackout here, and everybody was pretending it was a disaster. <laughs> they were saying, oh, it's terrible, all the lights are off. Yes, the lights may go on in Brooklyn pretty soon, folks. And I turned to Walter Kiernan. <laughs> and Walter Kiernan says, there must be 48 million guys that are going to blow up for Con Ed if they bring them on. You know? <laughs> I'll tell you the truth, you know. And, and all the time, you know, it's serious, all the time. How many of you know, of course you see it, almost all novelists are talking about this problem of love, search for identity, this problem of the fantastic battle of the sexes. And it never occurred to us all along that all you got to do is turn the lights out. <laughs> A lot of stuff happens, you know. Oh, yeah, it's, it's a terrible problem. I, I don't know whether you know this or not, but as a male, you see, in the 20th century life, I have to tell you something that has not been pointed out. I don't know whether you know how it feels to try to get emotional over a chick who's wearing hip boots. You know, and she's got a U.S. Army field jacket on. I'm serious, and she's standing next to her Harley Davidson. I mean, you feel like you're sick when you come up to her, you know? But so I suspect that turn the lights out, and there's an old expression about cats. I'll have, you'll have to explain that when you get back to Teaneck. Oh, yeah, there's an old, old expression, and I suspect that there's a lot to this. And so today I'm watching this Model A go by, see? This is a 1931 mint-condition Model A. And you know that great sound that the Model A engine's got? It's, it's got a four-cylinder basic engine. It's got four pistons, just go bop, 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 bop. It's got one little tin pot carburetor. It's got this gas tank. And when she goes around the track, it goes... <laughs> it stops. And I look at it. And sitting in the back seat of this car is an old lady... Yeah, it's like she came with the car, see. And sitting in the front is this collector, you know. He owns it, he's collected it, and he's making everything authentic in his car. He's got authentic hubcaps, the whole thing, and he's got an authentic X-flapper in the back. And she's sitting there looking out, see. And I watched this, and it hit me. I wonder how many fantastic things happened in this old car. I mean, can't you see the ghosts of all this stuff floating above it? Boy, talk about a pornographic movie. <laughs> yeah, oh, gee, you, you can imagine all these fantastic, and these, these terrible picnics. How many of you, for years, have hated picnics? And you live in a family that likes to believe that everybody likes picnics. My grandmother always said, let's go for a picnic. And I, oh, picnic. I'm a kid, you know, I want to just slide into second base and hit guys and swear and write stuff on walls. And I would find myself out at the forest preserve eating potato salad. And my grandmother sitting there saying, here, let's play catch. 
and I'm playing catch with my grandmother, you know, and I watch her, see, she throw the ball, and you know, I'm, I'm a kid, I'm playing ball all day long, I'm catching them over my shoulder, you know, like this, watch this, granny, I whip it like that, she's catching the ball, and every time she would catch the ball, her upper plate, her upper plate would snap at it, see, yeah, she had a great movement, see, the upper plate would go like that, and then when granny would get tired, she'd get tired, she'd say, all right, kids, Come on, kids, all come around. And this is a real grandmother, you know, with the gray hair that's all in little ringlets. And she's got the flowered print dress. You ever seen grandmas? They all look like pillows, vaguely tied in the middle. <laughs> you know, the greatest thing that ever happened to me was the night grandmother really did get caught in the washer. <laughs> and I discovered she had all the things that everybody else had, you know, that Esther Jane had. And <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's funny, though. Here's, here's Grandmother. She'd call all the kids together. She'd say, come now, come on, kids. And she'd sit in there and say, we've had, we've had the peanut butter sandwiches and the fried chicken. We've had the pop. We've had the potato salad. And Grandmother is giving us our highest point of the day. And by the way, this is the thing that the kids watched for. For one big moment, all of us would gather around. It's about 15 cousins. And grandmother would slowly push her double plate out. She'd say, watch. And her double plate would go crack, crack. And it would smile, see. And all the kids would applaud. They thought it was... And my mother would come over and say, grandmother, stop that. That was grandma's showbiz bit. Oh, we've all got one, you know, one little thing. My, my dad could throw his shoulder out of joint. Whenever the party got dull, you know, he'd say, watch this. Oh! He'd walk around. Oh! He was double-jointed. He had three shoulders would stick up, you know. All the kids would applaud, and my mother would say, stop it. The kids are watching. Well, this, this car, though, though, seriously, though, this car reminded me of a terrible moment in my youth. Now... I don't know whether any of you have ever worked in a big factory. Most of you have that look, you know, of guys that live in offices and, and in schools. But you're looking at an ex-reformed steel worker. And I mean, I wasn't there getting material for a book. I was there getting a paycheck, see. By the way, that reminds me of a great cartoon. Did you ever see that cartoon, a full-page cartoon? It shows this guy... And it shows this boat. And they're going across what looks like the river Styx. And you see 50 million people, you know, these terrible dead spirits. Oh, oh! And, the, and here is, here is Charon, you know, rowing the boat. And standing in the back is Dante. Dante. And he's looking at Charon, and he's got a big smile. He says, oh, it doesn't bother me. I'm just getting material for a book. <laughs> Well, you know, that's true, and, and, and I'm in the steel mill. See, I don't know there's any other world at that point. I'm 17, and, and the whole object of our life as we worked, as we lived in the steel mill town, you know, the steel mill, you can see it's like the mountain range. It's that big mountain range on the horizon. And at night, it would light up purple and green. And I'd lay in my sack, you know, at night. It's hot, it's August, the temperature's 150. 
The mosquitoes are all around. I can hear my old man standing up on the bed in the next room, swatting mosquitoes. How many of you had an old man who was a great mosquito hunter? My old man, I'll tell you, at 3 o'clock in the morning, he'd wake me up, you know, he'd say, There he goes! Hey, hey! And my mother'd say, What, 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 what? He was in his moment of glory, you know, and he carried, he carried his fly swatter in a shoulder holster. Oh, yeah, and you'd hear him swatting all night long, you know. We're all laying there wide awake, and the lights are on. He says, I got him! And you'd hear this mosquito, Aah! And you know, the old man went so far as to have great mosquitoes that he got. He had them mounted. Oh, yeah, he was a great mosquito man. And so here it is, it's hot and steamy. We'd hear the steel bell. You'd hear it in the distance. I don't know, boy, I, I, it's hard to describe it. It's like growing up in the immediate vicinity of a low-level war. Yeah, you just hear this boom. The ground would shake. Then you'd hear a faint siren. Then you'd hear the continual sound of trains going choo 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 choo. And then there'd be a long pause. And then choo 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 choo. And then you'd hear the sound of steel being poured, hour after hour. And so our great ambition as kids was to work in the mill. Now, whenever you did get a job in the mill. You would go to the mill every day in groups of four. One guy owned what he called his mill car. That would be a second car to civilized people. Out there it was called the mill car. And it was always some real old car, but the guy loved it. This was his real car. He went to work with it, you know. This was the, the car that was his life. The family car was for the kids and for the wife. But the mill car, he could spit on the windshield from inside, you know. <laughs> spit the back and just die, you know. Oh, yeah, I've ridden in some great mill cars, you know. You'd get in, you know, and you'd be knee-deep in beer cans, you know. It's a real male car, you know. You get in this car and it's tobacco juice and everything. You, and the springs are flying out. And everybody sits there with their, with their steel shoes, you know. You're wearing steel safety shoes. And I put them over on Bullis' head, you know. Bolus is sleeping off a hangover. I put it on his head. He says, get out of that shoe. I said, come on, Bolus. We're going to be in a tin mill in a minute. And up ahead is Ferguson. I've never told you about Ferguson. Ferguson was the consummate steel worker. Ferguson slept with his steel helmet on. <laughs> hey, have you noticed that, 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 that steel workers are getting to be part of showbiz? Have you seen those commercials where these guys are always up in these high girders? They're keratin smokers. You know, they're, they're all these little things, and they're unwrapped. One guy, oh, one of the saddest ones, is this guy that's unwrapping baggies. <laughs> Have you seen that guy at 40,000 feet over New York? He's got little baggies, you know. And Jake there says, hey, your sandwiches is fresh, Charlie. And Charlie says, yes, my wife uses baggies. Can you imagine that discussion? <laughs> you know, this is that great world of commercial, and they're and they're played by these two ad men. You notice there's a special type of guy that plays everybody in these TV commercials: square jawed, beautiful men, bronzed and tanned. They walk around. They wear tin hats. I like them when they're on the beach, especially. You seen that crowd in the Valentine commercials on the beach, all running around? And one says, 
Yes, it's uh, time to change to ale. <laughs> and here's this guy that looks 40 years old at least. He says, ale, what's ale? <laughs> well, that's a great moment, you know. And he says, ale, well, ale is like beer, only it's got more taste, friend. Yes, a man's taste graduates when he grows up and he drinks ale. A more manly drink. That's an interesting thought. <laughs> ale is a more manly drink, friends. That means that the closer you get down to that table and your head begins to nod and you start falling off your chair and ten minutes later they carry you out like this, somebody in the crowd is going to say, there goes a man. <laughs> you know, there goes a real man, you know. And, and, and by the way, have you ever, have you, have you heard that one line they say, they say, ale is more to the point. Yeah, it is. That tells you what all this drinking stuff is about, you know. Now, they say it's got a richer flavor. That means it knocks you out quicker. Translated. So, but the real steel workers, you know, they don't look like that. They don't, you know. They always kind of look just ordinary, you know. They walk around. They chew tobacco. Oh, boy, some night I have to tell you the story about the night that I'm riding in the steel mill bus with about 500 guys from the open heart. It's dark. There's a bunch of Bohunks and Hungarians, all the, all the Polish workers that I worked with, all of them sitting there, see? And you can smell these salami sandwiches. <laughs> yeah, they're lunch, you know, they all got, they've all got a lunch bucket that weighs 40 pounds. Or oh, some guys would bring 17 sandwiches. Each one weighs a pound and a half, you know, big... Yeah, two little thin slices of bread on this much salami, you know. And each guy would have a one-quart thermos jug full of what they call bagel red. What a lunch that makes. Oh, you know what this is? This is the strongest possible rawest red wine. And so I can, I'm a kid, see, I'm 17. And I am just, just vaguely getting out of the cream of wheat stage. <laughs> I'm serious. My mother is breaking me in now to corned beef hash. And, and I'm, I'm in the steel mill about one week, and I'm on a labor game. And I'm sitting there, see. And all of us are having lunch. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. We're on the midnight shift. And next to me is this steel worker. We're both sitting. And I've got my lunch, and I've got my Twinkies. <laughs> You know, you'd be surprised. You know, we talk about in and out, friends. You can be out in the damnedest places. You know, I got my Twinkie there, you know. My mother's made me a little tuna salad sandwich, you know, with a little parsley sticking out of it, you know. And this guy looks at me and says, what is that? What is that thing? And I got this little Twinkie, see. He says, what is that? And I says, well, it's a Twinkie. <laughs> He says, a whatie? What is that? I says, well, it's a Twinkie. It's the favorite dessert of America's teenagers. He says, let me try that. And I give him the Twinkie. You know, they come in two little Twinkies. See, I says, here, have one, Alec. You know, Alec was Nupsky, see. And I says, have one, Al. And he takes a Twinkie and he goes, Pah! And I says, ah, that's a Twinkie. 
He says, here, he says, try something good. And he gives me a chunk of sandwich. Well, to begin with, the bread is made out of vulcanized rubber. Oh, yeah, if you've ever seen a steel worker eat, they'll take a sandwich that's like this, you know. Their sandwiches come with handles on the side, see? Yeah, and there's a tail sticking out of it. Some kind of an awful little animal is living in there, you know. You wonder, what is it they're eating? You know, there's a head sticking out the other side. One little eye is looking up in Oh, yeah, and it's dripping some awful-looking juice, you know. He, he takes his thing and goes, ow! Then he grabs his thermos bottle and goes, boom, boom, boom. There's a brief pause, and he goes, Pum. He's spitting out whatever, the, whatever this is. It's always got pits. No matter what it is, they even have jello with pits. Pits like that. Then he takes another bite. And I'm a kid, remember this, you know, and I'm sitting there, I don't know anything about it. It's my first night on the labor gang. I have been working as an office boy up to this point. And my only connection with the labor gang is to walk past them real quick, you know. You know, they're all standing around with the big shovels and stuff and the big tin hats and the goggles and all that. And all around me, you've got to see the picture. This is a fantastic belching furnace. It's like hell itself. It's the open heart. And I'm here the first night. And, you know, I feel like I'm really in now. It's showbiz. It's life. And I sit down to have lunch. And next to me is Alec. And the furnaces are booming. You can feel the heat. And I say, how about a Twinkie? <laughs> you know, I want to be friends with these guys. You try to get in, you know. And Alec looks over at me and he says, kid... He says, you never, you won't be able to work here in a tin mill or the open heart or the blast furnace unless you eat good. You gotta eat good. And I says, okay, Al. He says, here, try some of this. And I take his sandwich. He's got about seven of them all packed in there, you know. I take the sandwich and I bite down into I couldn't bite it even. My teeth wouldn't go into it. <laughs> It's very embarrassing. He says, he says, put your gut into it. He says, move in on it. So I bite down. And it starts to burn. It starts to go down this way. Have you ever had, have you ever had a sandwich larded with red Polish peppers? Oh, my eyeballs. You know, they start going out like that. And I can feel this going down into my gut. You know, and Alex said, ain't that good? Is that good? That'll clear out the old ashes, boy. That good? Is I tell Stella put plenty of peppers in that. That play, and I'm sitting there. <laughs> and my gut is go 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 go. And you know, I had this this very sensitive stomach. You know, at that point, I was just beginning to drink my Ovaltine cold. <laughs> you know, I can feel it going up and down. And then he says, he says, here, take some of this. And he passes me the thermos. Well, you know, in my world, in thermos bottles, you always put lemonade. Maybe milk, you know. And I grab this thing, oh, my mouth is burning. I go, um, um, I must have knocked down about three jiggers of the strongest Dago Red in East Chicago, Indiana. It was made about four hours before Al came to work. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, they used to make it in their washing machines. I mean, there'd be detergent and all this crud in there. You'd get socks in it and everything. And they would pour, they would needle it, they would pour what they call raw elky in it, and it, had an, it must have had an octane of about 400. And his stuff goes down, my gut, you know, ooh, I shudder. Al's sitting there. You want another sandwich, kid? You okay? You okay? I says, yeah. And you know, I'm going to tell you a funny thing. From that day on, I have never had another Twinkie. <laughs> you know, it's very embarrassing. I walk past the store and I see these Twinkies and all that stuff. Just once I want to go up and say, give me a Twinkie. <laughs> or maybe a whoopie pie. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, this, this car, though, you want to hear about the car. So here's the story. Every morning at 5 o'clock when I'm working on the day shift, or every night at 11 o'clock, that red sound would come. When you're working in the steel mill, let me tell you, friends, you sleep. Boy, you sleep. You have worked eight hours on tonnage. And if you don't work, all these other guys that are working with you, you know, the, all the Bohunks and the Slovaks and all the tin mill workers, if you don't cut that tonnage, boy, they cut you down. And so all night I'm working, and I get out of work. Oh, my feet. You know, I, I've been used to playing football. This is like playing 70 football games in one night. And they'd rush out. Let me tell you what they do. You've finished work now. It's 8 a.m. And you're with your little gang. You get, to, you get to have a sort of involvement with the labor gang. You know them all. You know, Joe and Alec and Fred and Potsy and Stank and Stasha and Stinky and Rotten, all of them, see? Yeah, they've all got good names like that. There's a whole, it's like a team, see? And we were what they call basic labor. They would use us all over the mill. We never knew where we were going to be any night. All we knew is we were cannon fodder. And so 8 o'clock in the morning would come, see, and they'd hit the clock house on their way out. And here's what it would go, like a flying wedge. They'd walk. They're, they're, all their lunch buckets rattling, their hats and their helmets. Out to the clock house we'd go. And this is my first day. I'm with them, see. i got to be part of the crowd. They go right across the street and... Directly opposite the clock house was an old store. They had cleaned out the whole store, and the front of it just simply said, Bar. Remember, friends, it's 8 a.m. You get that 8 in the morning, see? This is scrambled egg time. And old genie, 17, goes running in with the number 12 work gang, you know? And they had this big board laid out, and they had on the board about 150 glasses, at least that high, filled with triple shots. And as each guy would come in, they'd hand them one in a hand, see? they all run in, and, and a beer in one hand, and he'd have a triple shot in the other, and he'd go... The triple shot, and... Pa, give me another one, Stasher. Down would go to beer. That's called the Boilermaker. I cannot tell you the traumatic experience when at 17, at 8 a.m., I had my first Boilermaker. It was my last Boilermaker. No, I'm working in a... I'm sorry, honey, you can go next door. They've got a great show with Pam Pam. That's a real show. Oh, boy, that's your game. 
<laughs> but but every day now now get this the, the guys working on the steel mill see like everybody else I think inbuilt in the human creature is this little tiny spark of lawlessness I'm serious I think most of us when we pick up the you know we pick up a copy of the Daily News or you pick up a copy of the Post and on page three you see this fantastic picture you know shows about 45 guys being thrown into the wagon you know they've got black glasses and they're holding the papers up and above it it says orgy orgy busted up in Brooklyn High School and you get bugged you know isn't it terrible the way life is getting and deep down inside he is this little thing that says missed another one I've never been invited to an orgy I have never been invited I suspect that many people are against crime because they've never had the chance oh yeah and so here we are we're working in a steel mill see and I can't explain these irrational acts that is the irrational act of fighting against authority now in our tin mill we were working at the tin mill at this time there was a myth around that tin is valuable you know tin it comes in big ingots and there it would be see and you see the tin pots and the idea was tin was valuable and so guys would steal tin they had no use for it nobody ever bought tin but you'd steal it and so they would cut little pieces off the ingots see and they would stick it in their pocket guys would stick it in their snuff box walking around no reason it was just a battle against authority and then one day they put in this magnetic machine the guys would walk out of the clock house you know and this thing would go boing 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 and so we say come here Ernie come here all right empty your pockets and all the tin is falling it's I don't know how it got there the tin machine must be splashing or something I say get out of here Ernie and so everybody is bugged see now they're on to stealing tin now I'm this is the this is the point where true disaster began to sneak in because once they cut off your supply of sin isn't, isn't that an awful thought once they cut off your supply of sin you've got to discover a new one how many times have you in the quietness someplace in the darkness all by yourself have had this sneaking ambition to discover a brand new sin that nobody's ever discovered before and you're doing it by yourself you know and the whole neighborhood the minute they discover it, it's illegal well here we are in the tin mill see now there was something that they used in this tin mill called benzol now benzol friends is about seven times the potency of high test aviation gasoline it's beautiful white it looks like a martini you know and it's a big green jugs and it's got lead seals all over it with big lead corks and it says danger highly inflammable very valuable do not steal <laughs> well every morning I would get out you know oh this is a sad story you better be prepared it's a sad one every morning Ferguson Bolas Rakowski me and Flick 
would go to work in this car that Ferguson owned, which was called Emma. We loved this car. It was a Model A with red wheels. And Fergie had fixed it all up. It was his mill car. You know how today surfers have their own cars, beach cars? This was his mill car. It was beautiful. It was a Model A Victoria. Had this nice black top. He polished this thing, you know, and it had red wheels. And inside, of course, we kicked all the upholstery out with our... Yeah, inside with our safety shoes, you know, we spit tobacco juice all over. You know, but it was a beautiful car. And I can remember in the morning, it's five o'clock, and I would hear that damn thing coming. It was like the sound of approaching fate. I'm sleeping, you know. How, how many of you have ever felt that sense of sleeping creatively? I mean, really seriously sleeping. You're, you're hanging out of sleep, you know. It's five in the morning and you're about to go to work and something inside of you says you're going to go to work. Oh, no, no. Oh, oh, you got the pillow, you know. And out in the kitchen, my mother, who never seemed to have that problem, I can hear the faint sounds of my mother making cream of wheat. You know, I could hear her walking around. I'm sleeping. And then I would hear in the distance, It's Ferguson. And my mother would say, Fergie's here. Ooh, if I, ooh, I hate people that say things like, rise and shine. Ooh, there's something basically rotten about that kind. And she'd say, Fergie's here. And I'd say, no, he isn't, no, no. And then I would hear this car go, and I knew I had to go. It was, it was no hope. I had to go. And so, Two minutes later, I'm standing and I've got my mill jacket on. Summer and winter in the fantastic heat of the steel mill, you wear long winter underwear. It keeps the heat out in the summertime and keeps the heat in in the winter. So I got my underwear on. I'm standing out in the kitchen. It's five o'clock and there's just a faint dawn coming up. And I hear that sound out there waiting for me. It's Emma going. I'd hate that sound. I'd put on my corduroy hat. I'd pick up my safety helmet. I got my safety shoes on. And I'm still asleep, see. And I start slowly falling like this, you know. My mother says, your lunch. She'd hit me in the gut with it. I'd grab my lunch. She'd turn me around. I'd... Out I'd go, my helmet, you know. And I would see sitting down there in the gloom of that that faint dawn, I would see that Model A going, it's jumping up and down, and I would see Flick sitting in the front seat like this. His helmet is hanging down. Ferguson, who's driving, is like this. <laughs> and I would get in, and Bolas is always, he's always sleeping off a hangover from last night. He's been to another Polish wedding. <laughs> And Bolas is like this, see, every night. And I get in and I step over him, you know, and I can smell all their lunches. Yeah, everybody always took the same stuff for lunch every morning. Ferguson, he always had spam. I would smell spam around Ferguson all the time, and he put piccalilli on it. Flick, he liked bean sandwiches. Yeah, you know, and he would put ketchup. You know, when you, when you smell bean sandwiches with ketchup at five in the morning, you know. And I would get in with my Twinkies, you know. And, 
the whole scene, you know, the, all of, we, 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 were, we were just a well-oiled team, see, and Ferguson would drive off, and the model A would... And we would join this line. Now, to those of you who live in an industrial area, you know this line. And that's that great, long, gray line of old cars heading along this concrete road at five in the morning towards this thing on the horizon, this prison, this jail, this fantastic machine, and you could see it vibrating, sending up red, big red fingers into the sky, and we're just sitting. And behind us would be another mill car. This is an old Essex. And there's... <laughs> And, and by the way, since it was in Essex, there were two guys pushing it. And so the guy didn't even have to drive it. It would just drive to the mill. You know? He'd just sit there in the front, you know, with the reins hanging loose. And the old Model A would just head into the parking lot. They had a parking lot that was roughly the size of the Bronx. I mean that, a fantastic parking lot on the shore of the lake. And there would be millions of these cars, one after the other. If you want to see a collection of great antique cars, look at a parking lot outside of a steel mill. And we would drive in and we'd be a little slot, see? And Emma would just automatically nuzzle in. And Fergie would turn the switch off. And when a Model A goes off, it usually goes off this way. It's going... He turns it off and it goes... And then as you get out, it goes... We never quite knew what it was saying, <laughs> but it had, a, it had a little sound, see, and so we'd get on and kick it and we'd walk away. And the old car is nuzzling up next to the Essex next to it, you know, these old friends here, and they'd start their car pinochle game, and we would all go into the mill, and this would go on day after day, and we would change shifts. Then we'd be on the midnight shift, and it would, it would start all over again. Then we would be on the swing shift, 4 o'clock. And you know, when you work shift work, it's like you never are awake. You're either working or you're asleep. And so we lived in this car. Well, one night, all four of us are in the tin mill. Now you got the seat. Emma is out there in the parking lot. We're walking around. It's lunchtime, you know, and we got a couple of minutes to spare. And along comes Flick, and Flick says... Hey, Shep, you got your thermos jug? And I say, yeah. You know, it's filled with knee-high orange. <laughs> I says, yeah, what, what, what do you want? You want a drink? He says, no. He says, drink all the junk you got in it, and me and Fergie and you, we're all going to steal a thermos jug full of Benzol. B-E-N-Z-O-L. I says, really? He says, yeah, they got a half jug that's empty back in the supply room. Let's go, Dad. Well, now, there was no reason to do this. It was just another strike against authority. And so I see Flick going to the storerooms. He comes out and he's got his thermos jug, you know, and he's looking like he's drinking coffee. And you can see the fumes, you know. <laughs> you know he's walking around like this. He puts the cork on it, goes, oh! You know, he puts it back on again, you know. Ooh, ooh. And you can see that jug going, gung, 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 gung. And so I go into this place, see. Well, you know, have you, have you ever had the experience of stealing something? 
Oh, it's, a, it, it, it's terrible. You, you really can secretly understand the, the thrill of this. It's, it's an awful thing, see? And I could hear the mill banging around out there. And I'm in this little storeroom all by myself. And there are some safety helmets up there and a couple of goggles, you know. And here's this jug, half filled. It's got a little lead spigot. It's got a sign, big red sign. It says, Danger. That is the best kind. <laughs> I mean, if, you know, if there was a little sign that says, this, this stuff is nothing. <laughs> or if there was a sign that says, Free, drink some. <laughs> oh. So it says, Danger. So I go like this. I take my jug. And it goes, ooh, 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 ooh. And I watch this stuff go in you. Ooh, ooh, it's like molten fire. It's white, and you can smell it. Oh, fantastic smell. You know the smell of gasoline? Well, multiply that by about 10,000. Boy, this is pungent stuff. And it, goes, and it was so pungent that as it would pour in, it would evaporate. So to get one quart, you got to pour in four. It just kept going in, you know, and I could see it going down all the time. It's going in. And finally, I get this thing filled up, see. I put the cork in. I stick it under my jacket, see. Walk out. The fumes are floating out, see. You know, I, I'm a crook again, see. And then in goes Ferguson. And now we have four quarts of the purest elixir of dynamite. And so now it's time to go out of work, see. So we walk through the automatic machine, you know, the one that rings. I'm clean. <laughs> you know, isn't it a good feeling that when you pick up the paper in the morning and it says, Axe Slayer kills 19, and you wake up and you say, they can't pin that one on me. <laughs> Wasn't me this time. <laughs> Not this time, you know. So we walk through this thing, and now we are in the parking lot, see. All these cars. We walk up and down. We're walking past all the old Oldsmobiles. We're tired. We got our helmets and goggles on. But we've each got a jug of benzol. And now here's Emma, sitting there so pure, so innocent, so trusty, and such a beloved machine in our lives. And I start getting in the back seat where I always rode, see? And Ferguson is getting in the front. And Fergie says to me, hey, he says, come here, hey, chef, let's put this in the gas tank. Well, now, perhaps you don't know, friends. Oh, by the way, that's part of the show. Give him a hand. <laughs> that's Omar, the tent maker. <laughs> they just getting nuttier by the minute. <laughs> I wonder how it was when Rome fell. <laughs> and you know, we're, we're sitting there. No, this was going to be a moment. No, I'm, I, I have to tell you this because this was a moment of supreme education. So here we are, innocent. Thousands of guys are coming out of the ship. And Ferguson opens the tank. Now, maybe you don't know what the tank is like in a Model A. I have to explain it to you. The tank in a Model A, the gas tank, when you sit in the front seat of a Model A, the tank is right over your lap. Doesn't that make for exciting head-on crashes? <laughs> yeah, the tank is right over here, see? And, 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 the, and the, the, the nozzle for it is a little chrome gadget that's right behind the windshield. It's right in front of you, you see, like that. And when you drive along, the, the tank, the indicator for gasoline in this thing is very basic. It's a little window 
Actually, cut right into the gas tank. You can see the float going up and down, you know. And it's, it, it says either empty, it says half full, full, empty, and then it says forget it. No, I'm serious. When this thing, uh, it would say empty, we knew that we had at least a month. <laughs> because you see, Emma was really faithful. Emma would go with no gas for weeks on end. It was that kind of car, you know. And when, when we would hear the float banging the bottom of the gas tank, and it would say, going, 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 and it would say, cheapskate, going, going. You know, Come on, you guys, going, going, going. Enough, enough, you know. And, and Ferguson would say, oh, come on, after all, it's Easter, let's buy it some gas. <laughs> and we would, you know, it was that kind of car. And so here it is, he says, let's give Emma a real treat. <laughs> That's like saying, let's slip into Granny's Ovaltine about four noggins of vodka. <laughs> let's give her a treat, see. We didn't know, you know, we were innocent. You know, this, this stuff just seemed like to us very good gas. And so Fergie pours his in, you know, he takes the thing off, he goes, gum, 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 gum. big quart thermos jug, you know. In it goes, you know, and there's a little milk in it, you know. And it goes in. Then I take mine, you know, and I go, gum, 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 gum. and this car, you know, it's empty. It's got about a half a gallon of gas, see. So I pour mine in. There's a little neon, you know, a little knee-high orange, you know, I pour it in. And then Flick puts his in. All four of us now. And boy, what a great feeling. We got in, and the tank said half full. That's the first time ever, you know, it's half full. So we get in, and Ferguson starts the car. It goes, you know how a Model A would start? It would go, it goes, back, 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 back. And it stopped. It was trying to tell us something. Ferguson says, well, wait till this stuff works down through the carburetor. And I'll tell you, it was fantastic. This car went, and it's faster and faster. It was insane. It was like a siren, you know. And thousands of guys are looking, you know. The car is ah, ah, jiggling and the gas cap was flying. So Flick Hollis turned the damn thing off quick. He turns it off and it just went faster. It, it just went, ah, and so help me, you know, this thing, if you know anything about a Model A, you will know that the Model A has what they call a manifold heater, which means it's a little heater hooked to the manifold. This thing was shooting out heat that made our open hearts seem like Jones Beach in the winter. The heat is pouring out, and Flick says, I'm going, I can't go. He jumps out of the side of the car, and just then both of the hood wings went out, boom. And the car is screaming, and thousands of guys are standing around. Smoke is pouring out of the back end. This thing was burning stuff it didn't even own. I'll tell you, it was like a big wood fire smoke, and the thing is screaming. And, and, and Ferguson says, Emma, what's the matter with you, Emma? There was Emma dead drunk. It's going, ah, screaming like mad. And, and the thing is smoke and everything else. And I thought, now there must have been about 500 guys all standing around, you know. And one guy says, what the hell you put in it? 
And Ferguson says, asshole! <laughs> Talk about a tiger in your tank, you know. And the thing is screaming you know, higher and higher. And we're standing. The guys are walking. Somebody gets a pail. He gets a pail of water. And he runs up to it and he throws it on the hood. And it just went, whoo! It blew the water back on him. Well, then there's always somebody in every crowd that turns in the alarm. And we could hear from the distance. You could hear these sirens coming. And we stood there and watched that thing scream. The smoke flying. The carbon flying. Little did we realize we were watching the death of Emma. That's right. She was dying. And she just slowly disintegrated until finally there was nothing but this hulk with the smoke and the crud. All these guys are standing around watching. Somebody says, gee, what a hell of a valve job. <laughs> you sure burnt the carbon out of her that time, you know? You know, we're really sad, all of us, at the fire trucks come up and they got the foam and they shoot it out, you know, and they come over and give us a report. What happened there? We stand there. And Ferguson says, I don't know. I just turned the key on, I guess. And Flick says, nothing me. I, I, I don't know, nothing. I, I don't know. There's about 50 guys from the steel mill all around us, you know, with the helmets. We don't want to admit we stole benzol, see. So the guy says, what, what, uh, what do you know about this? I don't know. My lunchbox, by the way, burned up. With the evidence, my thermos jug was gone, see. And so the fire chief says, well, okay, I guess it was suicide. <laughs> so you are hearing the end of a great car. Give it a hand. It's out there. That, that poor old piece of junk, which reminds me, what radio station is this, friends? And where are we? What a great town. What a fantastic town to visit. <laughs> you know, have you, have you ever heard a guy say that? Actually say that? I've never heard anybody really say that. That's one of those great myths. You know, just like the myth that whenever you go to a ballpark, somebody's hollering, Kill the Empire! I've been going to the ballpark since I was nine. I have never heard anybody say that. They only say it in cartoons. And you know, somebody asked for a story talking about baseball, and it's going to be a baseball story. Talking about baseball and unsung heroes like Emma, who died in the performance of her duty. There was an unsung hero that played an important part in my early kidhood. You know, many psychologists tell you that you are what you are depending on what you identified with in your formative years. So if you're a little kid and you identify with Mickey Mantle, you are going to be pretty tough a few years later. But some poor little kid that identifies with Phil Lentz, <laughs> you know, I got worried coming. <laughs> yeah, you got to know about him, see? I could see her say, who's Phil Lentz? <laughs> You gotta have footnotes with James Joyce too, honey. <laughs> oh yeah, Jacques Barzun 
whose very official said, to understand America, you must understand baseball, whether you like it or not. It's a, it's a complete game. And I'm a kid, see, and I had uh, this father who was not only a dedicated White Sox fan, he was baptized <laughs> a White Sox fan. No, it was his religion, see. Oh, yeah, when he picked up the sport page, it was like picking up the catechism. <laughs> oh, yeah, and he had, his, he had his entire pantheon of saints. He had his entire pantheon of devils, which is true of all religions. The bad guys were the Yankees. Yeah, that was, that was a very remote devil in his world. That was the big-time devil. But there were thousands of little devils. For example, the Detroit Tigers. They were a minor league devil. But my father's pantheon included Luke Appling. Oh, yeah, you mentioned Luke Appling to my father, and his eyes shined like a pair of silver dollars. He'd say, Luke Appling, yeah. And he would demonstrate his stance. My old man, would, he'd love to do that at parties. He'd say, Watch now. He'd go through the whole White Sox lineup. He'd say, Zeke Panora bats like this. <laughs> you know, Panora, big, fat, lumbering guy. He'd say, Luke Appling, he bats like this. See, Appling puts his arms way out, leans over the plate, see? He cocks the bat high. And here's my old man. He weighs 94 pounds. <laughs> you know, he's got these big, thick glasses, and he was in his glory. He imagined himself doing this, see? He said, watch, the way Luke, he said, the way Luke fouls off a ball. See, he holds the bat high, and then just at the last instant, he slides it down and off like that. And the old man is playing it, see? A real religion. And so I'm growing up under this. And the, let's put it this way, the oratorio of that religion was Bob Elson. Bob Elson on the radio. He was the local Mel Allen. He was the Chicago White Sox Lindsey Nelson. And you know how dull Lindsey is. Oh no, I can always remember one thing constantly. I'm coming up from school, see, I'm a kid. And it's a hot summer day. I've been down at the schoolyard, we've been playing, you know, we've been playing around, it's, it's now about four o'clock, and out of all the houses for blocks, you hear this voice say, strike one. <laughs> he just lay it out, he just say, strike one, and then you walk a little bit, say, so he swings, there's a high pop-up, he's out. It was the White Sox, you knew it. That was never the other team. He was up at bat, you know, he's out, he'd say, with that casual, tired voice. And it was the depression, see. And you wouldn't know, you would never hear anybody cheering. Because nobody could afford to go to the ball game. <laughs> These guys are playing it all out in an empty stadium. And you'd hear the sound, yeah, you'd hear a foul ball hit, see. And you'd hear, he'd say, there's the swing, there's a foul ball, and you'd hear it go, you ever hear that little clock? And then you'd hear a long silence, and then you'd actually hear it hit the seats. <laughs> and you'd hear the ball go bonk, 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 bonk. And then you'd hear the White Sox bat boy getting it. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was, that, it was that kind of scene. See, the White Sox are playing out. And so I'm, I'm, I'm a kid, you know, and I'm, this is the whole, the whole mystique of our household. The whole thing, see. But there was one voice, one important voice, that was once in a while mentioned, but was as important as, as Luke Appling and as Bob Elson. You'd hear in the middle of the afternoon, it's about three o'clock now, it's in the second or third inning, it's quiet, and you'd hear Bob Elson saying, 
That brings up Rip Radcliffe. You knew that was trouble. That was the White Sox comic left fielder. <laughs> that Rip Radcliffe's up, and then you'd hear this voice go, and you'd hear it echo all over Comiskey Park. And you'd hear it come through the loudspeaker. It was Ernie the vendor. Yeah, he was as much a star. Guys used to come out and watch Ernie. He was more fun than watching Benora. And, and that's a fact. I'm saying that the people in, in Chicago who were White Sox fans related to Ernie. Can you imagine selling popcorn at Comiskey Park and there's only 74 people there? And popcorn costs a quarter a bag? And these guys have not had a quarter in six months? And he's out there, you hear, buttered all over, buttered all over. And once in a great while, Elson would call him up. Yeah, he would call him into the press box. He'd say, well, today our guest is Ernie. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's the truth. You, you, you don't just have that kind of ball here in New York. You know, they just ignore the... the, the, the the, the poor vendors here. You know, the other day I would tell you a true story. This has actually happened to me. And that's really why I'm telling the story. I'm back of home plate at Yankee Stadium. Now, I'm, I'm probably the only guy ever in the history of Yankee Stadium that this happened to. I am back of home plate, see. This is the truth. I'm sitting in a box seat. Now, if my old man was alive to see me sitting in a box seat... He'd know that the second generation is better than the first. <laughs> he never, you know, he never even got to the left side of the foul line all of his life. He was always in deep right field or deep left field in the third deck, you know, way up there. And we saw the ball game from the other end of a telescope, these little figures, see. So here I am sitting back at home plate. This is the truth. This is about three weeks ago when Cleveland was in. And I'm sitting there, see big crowd just sitting in this crowd and all of a sudden I get tapped on the shoulder it's a guy see he's tapping me I turn and it's a vendor it's a vendor yeah he's got this great big thing and he says hey Shep <laughs> yeah it's a vendor he's got the white cap he says hey Shep and I says gee hi and he says I can't tell you how excited I am to meet you and all the rest of the people in the, you know, all the people, they look around, you know. You know those official people that go to the Yankee Stadium, you know. They don't talk to vendors, you know. You know, and he says, he says, he, now, now, this was one of the great moments of my life. Seriously, really. I'll always remember this. The kid says, he says, he says, I, I, I'm just so glad to meet you. He says, will you just once again tell about Ernie? <laughs> He didn't want me to tell the story of Roger Maris. You know. He wanted to hear about Ernie DeVender, and he says, just tell about Ernie. I'm telling you the truth. She was there. She saw it in the truth. And then he said this to me. He says, I want to do something for you. He says, here. He reaches in. He says, have a hot dog on the house. And he puts the mustard. He says, here, it's on me. And I take the hot dog. And you know... Getting a free hot dog. I'm serious, at Yankee Stadium. You know, come on, give him a hand. I'll tell you straight. 
I'm telling you, this kid gave me a hot dog, and he and he he see the the girl here was with me at the game, and he says he says he says here I'll give you one too, <laughs> and he says he says it was a great pleasure, and he walks away, you know, and, he, and immediately as soon as he walks away, he becomes a vendor again. He starts saying hot dogs, hot dogs. He's throwing quarters, you know. He's in the middle of the ball game, and Roger Maris is fine. He doesn't see the game, see. And as he goes off down through the sections, I watch this guy, see. And I wonder how many people know that there are great vendors. You know that? In every profession, there is a great. There's a guy that can do it better than all the rest. And Ernie of the Chicago White Sox Comiskey Park was legendary among vendors. And Ernie became famous. And this is the story that the vendor wanted to hear again. Because we're talking about the Babe Ruth of vendors. Ernie. And for 15 years, Ernie was the voice of popcorn. <laughs> yeah, in Comiskey Park, you'd hear... He never said anything else. They'd interview Ernie once in a while, and Bob Elson would say, well, we're glad to have Ernie here in the press box. Ernie, would you say hello to the fans? That's all he could say. You know, he was a fantastic vendor. And so year after year as a kid, you know, I'm listening to Ernie. And then one season opened up. It's early in the spring. The White Sox still have a chance to get ninth place. You know, everybody's all excited. And Ernie's voice is gone. That's the truth. He's gone. And it wasn't until a few years later I learned the story that every year, you know, maybe you don't know this, but the vendors move south. They go into spring training. Have you ever tried to work a doubleheader at Shea Stadium, friends? They go into spring training, and they go out down to Fort Lauderdale. You ever seen those spring training games? Those are the same guys, you know? Oh, yeah, they've got little teams, and they work, and they work different plays. Oh, you, have you ever seen a guy make a $20 bill change with his left hand, change a pen with his right, and keep the kids out of the beer all at the same time? Oh, yeah, these guys are working at throwing quarters. I've seen vendors throw quarters over three sections, you know, woo, like a, they put it right in your ear, you know. Great vendors, you know. They've got dollar bills sticking up. They change the mustard and all that. Well, Ernie disappeared. The greatest vendor that ever worked a ballpark in America. And Bob Elson made a note. Of course, there must have been a lot of people writing in. And Bob Elson said, well, Ernie doesn't have it anymore. Ernie's getting a little old, and Ernie is now down in the 3I League. Ernie was sent back to the minors. He's working in the three... Yeah, he's working in Waterville, Waterloo, Iowa, see? Well, let me tell you what happened. This is a sad story. Ernie, you know, you can just see the scene, can't you? The White Sox, for the first time in the history of this ball team, in modern times, are on their way to the pennant. You remember that, Mike? When the White Sox took the pennant in 59? The White Sox are on their way, and poor old Ernie... 35 years in Comiskey Park. They were never higher than fourth place ever. And Ernie is not there to see it. He's down in Waterloo in the three-eye league. Well, as the White Sox began to drive for the pennant and the pennant race got tighter, 
the crowds got bigger and bigger and bigger, day by day. And now it's July, and they're drawing 40,000 people every Sunday. And now it's September, and they're drawing 65,000 people. And now comes the big doubleheader, and this is a true story, a big doubleheader. The White Sox are playing the team that is a half game out of first, the New York Yankees. The New York Yankees. It's Sunday. It's late in September. 60,000 people come out to the ballpark, and four vendors don't show up. That afternoon, five minutes before the first game, the chief vendor is standing down there in the little, you know, they have a room. They have a dressing room, just like the ball players. They work out. They warm up. They throw quarters at the wall, you know. Oh, yeah, and they have little rubber hot dogs they practice on, you know. They do, you know, and they're all down there. And Mr. and the head of the White Sox calls down to the dressing room and he says, Get Ernie. And five minutes later, he's on the phone. And, I, and can't you see the scene? Ernie is about to begin work. Water, Waterloo is playing Rockford, Illinois. And they're playing in this used car lot. <laughs> and Ernie, Ernie is sitting there, you know, and, and all the young vendors, he was legendary, literally legendary. And Ernie is sitting down there, and he's telling the young vendors about his days in the big leagues. He says, I'll never forget one day when Ty Cobb came in. Ty Cobb come in, see? He's playing with the Detroit Tigers. And Cobb is on second base. He's trying to get the signal from the third base coach, see? And I'm watching the coach. And just as the coach starts to call a signal out, I holler, over. Cobb missed the sign. The White Sox pick him off a second, and I get a bonus. Are you aware that vendors are part of the game? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, Joe Pepitone going out for a pop fly in, in, in Boston, in Fenway Park. The other day, he's going out after a pop fly. He goes over near first base, and he gets a bottle of beer in the face. The vendor says, here, beer, beer. And gets him in the eye. Oh, they're all working, you know. And so here's Ernie, the greatest vendor. Oh, it's a sad picture, you know. Ernie is sitting there, and these young vendors, you know, they're playing in the minors. Now they're working their way up. And Ernie's been in the big time for years. And he says, you know, kids, you've got to work on your legs. It's the legs that go first. After that, you've got to work on your wrist action. He says, let me tell you, a guy working beer in Yankee Stadium who is a real short-change artist can get himself in the Hall of Fame in two years. The kids are looking at him, you know. When all of a sudden, the phone rings. It's the manager of the Waterloo Indians, the White Sox Farm Club, so far down in the class double L ball that they don't even let them use a new ball ever. They get used baseballs from class C teams, you know. And they're sitting down there and the phone rings. And the chief vendor says, yeah, really? Ernie, hey Ernie, it's Mr. Comiskey, come here. It's Mr. Comiskey. And he picks up the phone. Now, all of you know that in the last few days of a pennant race, old ball players who've got one last game in them are called up 
This is standard. Always done. Jimmy Fox won the pennant one year for the Yankees, playing those last games. The phone rings, and five minutes later, Ernie is on his way to Comiskey Park. The White Sox are behind in the fourth inning, and they're trailing, and the Yankees are moving ahead. When all of a sudden, down that long chute comes a figure clad in white. He's got a big aluminum box. He walks down. He's getting the last ounce out of those tired old legs, 35 years in the big leagues. He walks down, and he turns and faces the stands. He's behind home plate. The crowd is, is crying for a rally. When all of a sudden, that voice, it just echoes out over the crowd. And standing up at the plate is little Nellie Fox, White Sox second baseman. He looks up. He hears the sound of Ernie. The White Sox are on the way. The next pitch, Nellie Fox drills in the deep right center, and he takes third with a triple. And Ernie says, buttered all over. And he starts making change. That day, Ernie set a major league record for popcorn. Ernie holds the... He sold $74 worth of two-week-old popcorn. The crowd was roaring, and at the last moment, just as the White Sox scored their last run in the second game, you could see Ernie's legs were going on him. And Ernie dropped a half dollar. And one of the young vendors working the next section saw this great veteran make the first error in a day of total triumph. And he turned to another veteran, another, another old vendor, and he said, Charlie, we can always say we worked with one of the greats. And Ernie turned, faced the sunset. He knew that the White Sox had won the pennant. And that afternoon, late after he had turned in his popcorn case, he's on his way back to Waterloo. Ernie never played another major league game. I'm telling you a true story, believe it or not. And wherever Ernie is tonight, wherever the vendors of the world are tonight, living their tiny lives, give them an applause. Well, now, now, now I ask you, though, why is it that I identify with the vendors? You know, uh, how many of you were ever... There's a whole world of underground people that you never hear talked about. How many of you were ever a theater usher? Well, I know you weren't, honey. You, you haven't got the, the, the look of a theater usher. We'll give you your show after a while. You're, all right, you're very good. But seriously, I, I, I identify with that world because as a kid, I did most of those things. And I remember one of the great triumphs of my kidhood. I'm about 12, see? And you, you wouldn't believe it to look at me now. I was tall for my age. I was a foot taller than I am now. Yeah, I'm 12, see? And I'm walking around. And, and one summer, by, by chicanery we will not go into, I got a job as an usher at the Orpheum Theater. Boy, is that official. And you see all the movies free, see? And you see a lot of other stuff. 
Are you aware of what an education you get? Especially when you work in the balcony and the late show. Oh, it's fantastic, you know. Oh, yeah, you know, just look around. And so I'm a kid. I'm about 12 or 13 years old, and they give me this uniform. Boy, sharp uniform. And I can remember I'm, the, I'm probably one of the very few ushers who ever wore his uniform home. I like to wear it in the bus, you know. Big gold, you know, it's got gold epaulettes on the side. It says Paramount Theater, you know. I wanted to think I was a movie star, you know. Oh, yeah, I was in showbiz. I remember Esther Jane Alberry saying, I sure love a man in uniform on the back porch. But the big moment of my life came. Did you ever see those movie marquees that say, Hearts Aflame, starring Lesbia O'Toole? And underneath it, it says, An Adult Picture. Adults only. Nobody under 18 admitted, this means you, you little klutzes. <laughs> yeah, have you seen those marquees? Well, you don't know the fantastic secret sense of thrill it is to be 12 years old, walking up and down the aisle, watching a dirty picture. <laughs> yeah, and keeping other kids out, you know. <laughs> That's really great. And it was this movie.